Uh, there's a joke in here somewhere, but will it be mean? I can't make the joke and then we can workshop it to make it funny. That always works. No, I'm not sure we can. That's the problem. I'm cutting my losses. No, we'd only... we got a mean joke quota, probably, and we're going to talk about locus later, so John's going to be prepared. <laughs> Hello everyone and welcome to the very 72nd episode of Octothorpe, a podcast for science fiction and science fiction fandom, which is coming to you on the 8th of December 2022. I'm John Coxon. I'm Alison Scott. And I'm Liz Batty. Alison's cracking up already, we haven't even started. <laughs> um, um, so we have some letters of comment. Yeah, we got some, we got letters of comment. We have lots of letters of comment because lots of people gave us suggestions for the Octothorpies. Yes. Yes, they did. So we heard from Duncan McGregor, who um, knows on which side his bread is buttered, uh, because he suggested categories for Best Alison, Best John and Best Liz. Uh, And that would be uh, very flattering, obviously, but we wouldn't be able to, on any account, award them to ourselves. And so that would be an incredibly meta uh, category that would lead to a lot of interesting wrangling. I am immediately recusing myself from the Best Alison category. Ali Baker... Alison Abramovitz. I suppose there is a risk that, like... <laughs> there's a risk that I don't win, yes. That would be the, the great risk, but... Well, but there's also a risk that I nominate Al- Alison for best Liz and vice versa. In what way am I... In what way am I the best Alison? In what way aren't you? Hmm. I don't know. I feel I want to win best Liz once and then recuse myself forever. That does seem reasonable. I don't know if I want to win best John. <clears throat> there are a number of options for best John. Do Jonathans count? We would have to have a serious discuss about uh, eligibility. No, they definitely don't. Okay. And do Alison's spelt with a Y count? Um, maybe. Or Alison's with two L's? Ali Baker, late in a late lock, Ali Baker has just noticed that the FA Cup contains a women's team called Hashtag United. Ah. And maybe they should be our, and suggest they should be our official sports ball team. Another suggestion for a Octothorpe's category is from Hugo Girl, which is proposal best transatlantic podcast besties, brackets, no reason, uh, which is thoroughly great. Oh, yes. We'll vote for you if you vote for us. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, emailed us and said, morning team, uh, I nominate my cats for best cats that are not badger. Which, yeah, leaves the obvious obvious second category of best cats that are badger, which, much like the Alice and John and Liz categories, is uh, uh, going to be an interesting set of nominees. Yep. I suspect what we will see is badger will be nominated and then a variety of cats in badger cosplays. <gasps> I, mean, I mean, badger is known for being a very large black cat. So really, anyone who has a large black cat could nominate it as best badger. Or I could buy my cats cat fat suits and put them in cat fat suits. Yeah, your cats are a bit small to be best badgers. John, are you cat fat shaming? Not shaming. All cats are very valid in their various sizes, but I'm worried that it would be too obvious that my cats are not badger to win the award. I'm 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 kind of going the existence of fat suits is a kind of inherently fat shaming thing. Because fat suits only exist because people want to have 
characters of size being played by thin actors, which is a is an is a kind of size phobic thing to be doing. Sorry, I'm sorry for being very very humorless about this. Agreed in humans, but what would you call the cat costume that you could put a small cat in to make it larger, Alison? What noun is that that every one of our listeners will understand what I'm getting at? Well, probably not a cat suit, yeah. It's bit, I mean, it's pretty much the same as if we wanted to disguise Alison as me, we wouldn't put her in a, a fat suit. You'd have to be stilts. I'm going in an even worse direction, aren't I? Let's give up on this uh, train of thought entirely. So now I need, apparently I need to lose weight and get stilts. I think you can, you can be whatever way you like to impersonate me, but I do think you're a little bit shorter. I am quite a lot shorter than you, I believe. Digging a lot of holes here, aren't I? Anyway, um, I think we may have strayed from our topic of cats. cats. <laughs> and she says, are you going to have the Octothorpe's Octoversary on the 80th episode of the or the 88th episode? What better time to hand out your awards? And the answer is that we had it on the 64th episode, but nobody noticed. I think it's got to be, I think 88 makes more sense than 64 on account of how we're a base 10 culture. Then why does 88 make sense? Surely 80 would make sense. I'm up for 80. Yeah, maybe. So maybe 80 should be our octaver. It's complicated, isn't it? I mean, let's face it, it's probably going to be the one which corresponds with some kind of major event. And I think if we calculate it, we can probably wiggle one. You can probably wiggle either 80 or 88 to be at uh, EasterCon, right? Uh, Pass. I'll do that maths uh, at some point. Uh, I promise. I will say that Shut Up and Sit Down have a novel approach to this where they just uh, put increasingly large decimal points after their episode 99 and 199 so they can make the round number be a special event uh, so i just listened to podcast episode 199.75 i'm not sure if that's better it's an approach plockter had an episode 33 and a third rather than 33 because it was our long playing episode and it sounds like our octaversary episode should be 88.88 recurring and also notes that she cooked a salmon in a dishwasher at the Novacon steam room. I'm pretty sure I've read that right. Uh, where did you get the dishwasher from? And right in. Kurt Phillips wrote us a long letter, um, which he then sent us an email to say he hadn't worked out how to send us it an email. So, so he was putting it on the Facebook page. So it's on the Facebook page. When he says he sent, when he said he sent us an email, did he send us an email or did he send you an email? Yeah. He may have just have sent me an email. He says, John talks improbably fast, but with perfect clarity. Kurt does say that he didn't miss a single word. He just listened faster. The great thing about listening to podcasts, though, is that you can listen to them at whatever speed you like, so that if people talk too fast, you can slow the podcast down to hear every word. And if people talk too slowly, you can speed this podcast up. Only works if we all talk at the same pace as John, though. And and then he had a good old whine about the Hugos, um, which you could read on our Facebook page. And he said, your Novacom report was very enjoyable. I didn't hear mention of a dealer's room or a not show. And I'm pretty sure I said I spent the whole weekend in the dealer's room when I wasn't in the bar because I was trading. Yes, we didn't focus on it. I think you mentioned it in passing. I hope I didn't cut it out. Uh, well, and there is always an art show at Novacom, uh, which is usually very good. There was an art show, which um, was very nice. And he also says, or oh, did you three see, simply not peek into them? And John and Liz didn't peek into those rooms because John and Liz were not at Novacon. I was the only person at Novacon. 
Mark says, they say science fiction isn't very good at predicting the future and seemingly neither are science fiction fans. At least so I concluded on listening to Octothought 70 yesterday with its confident assertion that Claire and, Bu- uh, Claire and I were in Buxton last Thursday. Uh, and yes, Claire, Claire and Mark never made it to Buxton. Um, sorry, Claire and Mark. Uh, so we lied, listeners. We lied. But we didn't know we were lying. So that makes it better. We lied the episode before last because by the last episode we knew that they weren't in Buxton, but I don't think we mentioned it, so there we go. So this is a lock on issue 70. I mean, to be fair, if we did a list of everyone who wasn't at Novacon, that would be the running time of the episode. So it is understandable we didn't, but equally, uh, yes, it's a good lock. I mean, if we did a list of all the times that we are wrong about something, that would probably also make quite a sizable episode by itself. Zing! Liz, do you want to read the last part of Mark's letter? Because it deals with your pick. Uh, it does, yes. Because uh, my pick of Earthsea inspired Mark to take down a copy from his bookshelf of the Earthsea trilogy, which was at that point the Earthsea trilogy. Um, and it seems that he managed to get halfway through chapter seven of book three and, and then stop and he might start again. But actually, it'll probably wait until it's 40 years since he stopped um, and we'll make a note to write back to Octothorpe at that time, which we think will be episode of Octothorpe 174. So basically, if we're still going, Mark will write to us in episode 174 and say he's read Earthsea or not. So keep your eyes peeled for that. And if you're... I mean, I'm not going to remember that by episode 174. So Mark, I hope you will. If you are listening to this back episode at the point where we have released 174, please pause it here, go and listen to 174, and then tell us off if we didn't do it. I wanted to move back to the discussion of using old receipts as bookmarks. And one of the advantages of physical books, I've been thinking, I'm getting rid of all of my books. I don't think this is quite a pick, but but I'm getting rid of an awful lot of books at the moment. And one of the things about physical books as opposed to electronic books is that if you do keep your physical books and you use old tatty bits of paper as bookmarks, then you do have permanent records, as Mark did, of where you gave up on a particular book. Because because your receipts are still there 40 years later. And and we've certainly, some of the, several of the books that we've taken down from the shelves have bits of paper in at the point where one or other of us gave up on them. I'm pretty sure my Kindle also remembers where I was up to and when I last read it. I'm not sure where you, how you get that information out, but I think it does. Another plus point for ebooks. Uh, listeners, please write in with your Python packages <laughs> that can go through a Kindle library and work <laughs> out when you gave up on each book. Ooh. Thank you very much for writing in, Mark. We also heard from Christopher J. Garcia, who says, Indeed, it is gigabytes. In fact, it's now closer to 40 gigabytes because he's found another old thumb drive with copies of Claims Department he'd forgotten about. Um, So, you know, um, noted archivist and curator Christopher J. Garcia showing off his uh, curation and archiving uh, methods there, which is old thumb drives. So that's good. Hurrah. Uh, I'm not much better, to be fair. He does also say that I am a bad person for enjoying Voyager. He also says that your off-the-cuff method for voting for things was is in fact the way that they do draft picks in the National Basketball Association. So I thought that was quite interesting. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems still seems like a terrible way of picking, say, politicians. But I guess if you have, like, many, many draft picks and you just want to allocate them in some way that is semi-fair, that's not a bad way of doing it. Indeed. Oh, and he says he wishes he could go to Novacon one day. Although, as a guy who knows an incredibly limited amount of Spanish, Novacon is a con that shouldn't move. 
Yeah, they've been making that joke for about 49 years, so, you know. I've never heard it. Okay. (laughs) It's a generational thing. It's almost like people who are the older members of the community shouldn't just be like, oh, yes, we did that, and then never say it ever again. DC says, uh, in regards to Raj's lock, uh, that Raj probably doesn't have to pay more to get a full membership in Glasgow because they're offering discounted memberships to anyone resident in Scotland. This is not it. So, and I regret, I regret making this comment on the podcast because a lot of people have written in to try and guess what I meant. So, I was drunk in a Glasgow in 2024 party at uh, Tricon 8 and the lovely Meg McDonald collared me and said, do you want to pay us £100 to upgrade your supporting membership to a friend membership uh, before the bid session so that when the bid session happens, you will be automatically upgraded to an attending member? And I said, I haven't bought a supporting membership yet so i can't upgrade and meg very wisely saw that um it was better to get 100 quid out of me then than it was to not do that and just uh pushed me at the laptop anyway and i filled in like a good little drunk boy so the reason i owe 20 quid to glasgow is because i didn't have a supporting membership before i upgraded that supporting membership to a friend membership i i suspect i'm the only person to whom this situation applies so I do apologise for bringing it up because I think it's caused some confusion. Uh, but yes, it is because I was drunk. And it has nothing to do with whether or not I am in Scotland. To the best of my knowledge. You know how they have like, you know, a Wussfuss membership and then an attending supplement. Can John have a special drunken fuckwit supplement, which is the extra 20 quid you have to pay them now? <laughs> Can I make drunken fuckwit sub- supplement the episode title? Because <laughs> I know I can't, but that would be very good. I, I, I'm slightly confused by this because they sold friends memberships all along to people who didn't have pre-support nope they didn't they stopped in about mid-july but if you had a pre-support you could still upgrade to you could a upgrade. friend but they let you have the friend membership anyway due to some form of wanting a hundred pounds it did uh, uh, i think it's a monetary system known as capitalism no, some sort of special exception for mates, it sounds like, because if they wanted £100, they could have done that for everyone. They also could have just waited. On- no, I think I think they wanted I think they wanted to make sure they didn't have a huge influx at the end, but I suspect people in that room in the parties at Tricon was a small enough group that it didn't cause much extra work. Oh, no, that makes perfect sense. Okay, so, so people... Well, if there's a drunken fuckwit supplement, that feels like... If they have a special drug and fuckwit membership, then I can have that for Pemicon, can't I? Beneath Ceaseless Skies has recused from the Hugo Award for Best Semi-Pro Zine. It has won the World Fantasy and British Fantasy Awards, and it has been it has been a finalist for Best Semi-Pro Zine ten times. Um, and they have recused themselves from the category. They want to support other indie zines run by dedicated staff and publishing great and important stories whose work deserves a Best Semi-Pro Zine finalist spot and the corresponding boost in reach and support. This is great. I think I'm on the record of saying that once you've won in a category more than a handful of times, you need to recuse and let the rest of the genre have its time in the sun. And I'm looking at you, Uncanny Magazine, when I say that. But I think it had never really occurred to me that long-time finalists might want to do the same thing. And this seems like a really positive mood. Uh, especially long-time finalists in the best semi-prosine category, which seems to be quite static. Like it doesn't; it's not a very vibrant category. 
it doesn't showcase the best work in the field so much as it just repeatedly rewards the usual suspects and so um, i guess in categories that are in that uh, bucket recusing yourself from finalist state even when you haven't won it is as good as you can do to sort of try and make that category a bit more vibrant um so yeah this seems really good well done to beneath ceaseless skies do either of you have a hot take on this uh, i do have a hot take but it's mean and we've said we're not allowed any mean jokes so. why don't you go for it and then don't cut it out if it's just too mean <laughs> So, so my hot take is: Oh, I'm recusing myself of the, from the best semi-prosian category, where I I might have to stand up on stage with 43 people. But I, but please all vote for me in best editor short form. Is the actual form of the statement? Beneath the skies have only ever, I think, nominated themselves with one editor listed in the in the category. So beneath the skies is the one where they always do just list Scott Andrews um, and the you know not the entire list of staff. I mean, yeah, there is something in that, which is, I think it must be really hard to recuse yourself from something after being nominated so many times and, and not winning. It must be hard to say, actually, it's time to recuse myself anyway. And kind of, you know, you never got to do that bit of like standing on the stage and getting your spotlight. But they do point out that you can still nominate Scott Andrews as best editor and you can still nominate kind of all the individual stories in the magazine, in the individual categories. So while you're taking the magazine out, you can still nominate its contents and its editor in other categories. So, you know, there is still a chance that many people associated with the magazine will get kind of a a moment of glory in a way that you probably don't like. If you recuse yourself from, say, best fan writer, then you're recused from best fan writer. That's it. If Beneath Caesar Skies changed editor-in-chief, I would not think it was hypocritical of them to unrecuse themselves as well, because I do think that would be reasonable uh yeah liz is right it is just scott andrews who is listed under their thing the only one in that category so maybe the actual thought process is well clearly everyone else is a giant hive mind collective uh and i am just a man so i can be safely nominated in one of the categories that is just for people and let other hive mind collectives come up in this category that is a much more charitable way of looking at it than mine which probably was was going what is going on here is there some ego sense i don't think i'm that cynical but i kind of looked at this as it is could this have been a cynical go of what is my best scope of getting a a hugo clearly this category is not it despite us being very regularly nominated Alison, if you've just read the thing on file 770 then i think it is worth you clicking through and reading the whole statement yeah, it's quite a short statement, isn't it? Yeah, but it basically says, you know, they've already seen, like, while they've been a finalist, their readership has doubled and they think they've basically got a lot of value out of it. And then at the end, lists a bunch of other magazines on the 2020 long list they think, you know, deserve a place on the ballot. So, you know, it really does feel like saying, you know, we, we've had uh, great success from this. Here are some other magazines we think could take our place and, like, you know, enjoy the boosted readership. Oh, no, you're right. I hadn't clicked through. I'm a moron. I had clicked through once, but I hadn't clicked through sufficiently to get to the actual statement. Right. I see. Yes. So I think I think I think it's very nice, really. And I think I would find it hard to do myself if I was nominated a lot and I, you know, never quite made it to winning. I think it would be hard to say, actually, no, don't nominate me again. So I think I'm, I'm going to quickly list. So the ones um, that he recommends in his um, statement are Mermaids Monthly, Correo, sorry if I've pronounced that wrong, Fireside, Diabolical Plots, The Deadlands, and Giga Notosaurus. Fireside's an interesting one because that is not an uncontroversial recommendation uh, lately. 
he's not completely recusing himself from the possibility of winning a Hugo Award because he's still eligible in another category, whereas obviously if we recuse ourselves from Octothorpe, we would not be eligible in any other categories, so we would be, like, permanently... <laughs> Speak for yourself, sunshine. I mean, I would like to say that I did go and look it up because I think Mermaids Monthly has not published anything since 2021, so I think they're actually not eligible this year. Um, they basically did 12 issues and then I'm not sure if like a second set of 12 issues has come out or if that might happen in 2023 or if it has folded. But I do not believe they're eligible next year unless I've missed something. Interesting. The last thing on their blog is saying we're about to launch our 2022 fundraiser and that was July. Huh. Uh, yes, but if you look at their 2022 fundraiser, Oh, sorry. They were sorry. Yeah, they've got a 2021 fundraiser which didn't make its target, so it looks like they must be launching a new one in 2022 that maybe will run in 2023. The, the idea was they were going to hand it over to a new set of editors for the second year, and I think that has like didn't make its fundraising target and never happened. But I don't know whether it's coming back again. But I didn't want to say like too much about that. Just that, just that don't nominate them in 2022 because they're not eligible. So Mermaids Monthly were pretty close to making the ballot this year but didn't quite make it and will not be eligible next year. So keep an eye on them for future years if they return. Giganotosaurus was last a finalist in 2017. Fireside was last a finalist in 2020. I don't think the others mentioned in the statement have ever been finalists before, but I might be wrong. So yes, it would be nice to see some of these categories mixing up a bit and people having a longer look at the long list to find things that they want. Shall we move on to the Locus fundraiser? So Locus is having what it calls a first annual crowdfunding campaign. Yes. So, for example, my pub, my local pub, had a terrible time at the beginning of the pandemic. And it's a very much community pub. It's kind of run as a community theatre. There's a lot of stuff like that. It is the old Rose and Crown in Walthamstow, for anyone who's listening. And they had a fundraiser to kind of get them over that immediate pandemic-y hump. But there was never any suggestion that if you're a pub, your job is to sell food and drink to members of the public and theatre tickets in a way that covers your costs. Yeah. And if you're a magazine, your job is to sell your magazine to members of the public at a rate that covers the costs. So I wouldn't mind Locus saying, oh God, guys, we're in a bit of a pickle. We're having a crowdfund to get us over this hump that we find ourselves in. But I feel like the the long-term goal of a magazine should be to run to break even rather than to say, oh, and we're going to come back every year for extra money. It felt a bit odd to me. It's kind of like, yeah, no, we're just going to be loss making forever, but the authors will support us. And maybe they will. I think this is a really good argument for why semi-prosine is such a tricky category, because the difference between a pro magazine and a semi-pro magazine is not obvious. And I think this blurs it even more, because obviously lots of the semi-pro zines in the field rely on crowdfunders um, to happen. And I don't think it's um, unreasonable to say, you know, if you like this thing and you want it to keep going, throw us some money. I mean, I don't think it's any more ridiculous than like a pay-what-you-want video game on itch. And I think with more niche 
stuff more niche categories it is harder to find the ability to do that commercially i mean i think a pub is a bad example because um although i like pubs i think especially the old-fashioned community pubs to which you refer they're very similar and so if one pub goes out of business there'll be another pub somewhere in your town whereas if locust goes out of business there'll be other magazines but there won't be another locust magazine uh, and so I think there is a uniqueness to it as well. I mean, somewhere in my town, if my town is London, but not somewhere in my town, if my town is Walthamstow, really. I'm going to say something here, which is as a as as obviously someone who uh, married someone who lived in the San Francisco Bay Area, there is a problem, which is San Francisco is rapidly becoming the sort of place where if you are not rich, you cannot be. And so that works a lot. Like if you work for Apple or Google or Facebook or any of these massive companies where you make a lot of money, living and working in San Francisco is great and hurrah. But there is a reason that like magazines like Macworld have been downsizing their San Francisco office space and moving to remote workers. And that is because having a full-time staff, all of whom live in San Francisco, is rapidly going to become untenable. And it's untenable now, but in 10 years' time, it is going to be worse than it is now. It's a pretty, it's it's a it's a pretty mean take. You're basically, you know, because to, I mean, what what is your conclusion to this? Is that they should move somewhere that is not San Francisco or Oakland, to be specific? I mean, I mean, I don't, and and I think that sucks. But I don't see how Locust can remain profitable if it hires six full time people who live and work in the Bay Area. Because I know people who live and work in the Bay Area, and they're moving out, and that's because the Bay Area is becoming unlivable, and that isn't Locust's fault. But it is true. And so and, 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 and it's worse now than it was a decade ago when I met Espana, and it will be worse in a decade than it is now. And so unless locusts have a plan, locusts can't just stay afloat. Locusts will need to find more money because it's getting more expensive, not less. And especially with inflation at 10% globally, I don't see how this works. And so, yeah, if they're determined to maintain a staff of six, all of whom live in the Bay Area. And it sucks because I love San Francisco and I think it's part of the death of the area. And if we're going to talk about this, we could talk about it. And I have really strong and really mournful opinions about it because I think San Francisco is dying. And I think this sort of thing will die because it is based there. But And that's horrible. But it's not unreasonable to try. But like equally, I don't think it will work. These funds fulfill three main purposes, which are... Paying people to live and work in the Bay Area, creating a top-notch print magazine, and the overhead for our office space, which is presumably also in the Bay Area. And I'm like, I don't think, obviously, you know, I don't believe in print magazines. Um, I'm just giving away all my text-based documents that's not fundamentally art-based. So I don't think I believe in any of those three goals. I don't think those three goals are things that we should be directly supporting. I mean, I don't mind if people support them, but if somebody's like, are you kicking into the locus Indiegogo? The answer is no, because you've told me that you're doing three things that I believe are not good uses for human funds. I don't really have a problem with print media. I mean, I don't buy print magazines, but like, I don't have a huge problem with it. And especially maintaining a Bay Area office space. I mean... They they do say elsewhere that they basically... I mean, I don't know how up to date this is, but they have a Patreon where they say that they share some offices in a house in Oakland with lots of other nonprofits. So I don't know how kind of sustainable that is. So my feeling is that, yeah, the value of Locus is having a news magazine that covers the field. But that is what I like. This is not necessarily tied to it being in a particular location or producing a print magazine. 
And what I can't see from this fundraiser is kind of how sustainable this is. Magazines that fund themselves with an annual Kickstarter. There are lots of semi-prosines that fund themselves with annual Kickstarters in this way. But I assume they kind of have a goal and that goal is to cover the running expenses of the the magazine. And it's usually their running expenses are more like $20,000 and then they have stretch goals. Whereas this is trying to raise $75,000 out of the over 600000 they need. So, you know, they're saying if they get $75,000, taking away their subscription and, and existing revenue, they still need to get $240,000. That is just such a monumental task to be crowdfunded. What I'm missing here is how they think in future years they will be on a sustainable level. And can I digress for five minutes? So there is a website called Metafilter, which I've been reading for many, many years. And for many years, they've had now an annual fund drive. And what has become clear in the past couple of years is that they had an annual fund drive, which was just about getting them the money they needed to continue. But it was not sustainable because their other sources of revenue were shrinking. And they kind of got to this year and went, oh, wait, hang on. Our other source of revenue have been shrinking. Our pool of savings is going down. And actually, just asking people for money once a year and getting a bit is not putting us on a sustainable footing for the future. And so there's lots you can't, I can't get into here, but they basically been a change of ownership there's now kind of a community organization board they've been taking a thorough look at finances at future funding models and this year's fundraising drive has basically said look we've got three models if we get this much money we can survive if we get this much money this is the extra things we can do to make ourselves more sustainable and if we get anything above that here's like future things we'll do and i'm sort of looking for something a bit more like that our locus thinking actually we can increase the number of subscriptions and we can do this kind of fundraising drive where we they sell magazines but they're also selling like a bunch of extra extra things like you do in any fundraising auction do they think that this is going to get them through every year or are they going to come back next year maybe ad revenues have gone down subscriptions have increased a bit the cost of living has increased a bit and now they actually need $125,000 to survive they're not obliged to provide me with like their future business plans. But when I'm supporting, so something is coming and saying, can you help us support us for the future? I like to see kind of that they have a sustainable plan for the future. Business models change and Locus is a decade or more behind, you know, most small special interest magazines have gone fully digital or no longer exist. Locus has done very well to survive as long as it has with a full-time staff of six in this in this space because lots of magazines like that aren't around anymore. Is that true in our space? Because like Asimov's is still both, right? It's fiction magazine. This is a this is kind of a, a specialist industry magazine. It's difficult because they don't break out their in in the thing they break it out into paying writers, editors and artists, sustaining issues, website and award and Locus HQ. And Locus HQ is the lowest at 60 grand and paying writers, editors and artists is 450. And if you read that, you might think, oh, most of their money is going on on commissioning content. But the 450 is where the staff costs for the six full time staff are. This entire fundraiser would be, I mean, they're asking for seven, 75,000. And if they got rid of their office space, that would make up 60,000 of it. But like then, where do you put the Hugos, I guess? No, they were like, we want to raise a lot of money. We're going to have an auction. They've got 30 Hugos. They'll raise a fair packet. Oh, that's true. We could um, we could bid on them all and give them out at the inaugural Octothorpes, guys. Sustaining the issues is in the 130 grand line item, and I have no idea how much that costs to do. But I have to be honest, I think a Locust magazine that doesn't have an office and doesn't have a print magazine 
but does still do what locust does is way more valuable than a locust that does have an office and does have a print magazine but is slowly becoming more and more unviable i'd, I'd rather see them pivot and continue and works remotely well it's tricky right because because like what do you do with the staff do you say you move or we fire you i i want to have that conversation with six people i w- manage no no you say we cannot increase your salary that's how this is done so people go, well, we cannot survive in the Bay Area on this salary. And at that point you go, well, have you considered we're working, working remotely somewhere that is not in daily commuter range of, of our offices in Oakland? Many companies have done this. But the thing is that if, if, a new, if a new business started up today to do what Locust does, it wouldn't have an office. Businesses like that don't have offices anymore if they're new businesses. They only have offices if they're old businesses because that's the way this, these sorts of things used to be done. Nowadays, businesses of this kind work remotely and occasionally hire meeting space. I don't know how extensive the Locus archives are. I can see that it's something that they are currently preserving and maybe that needs to be preserved in a library somewhere. But also things like if you are locust, you are getting a lot of like books delivered to your office. So you probably do need some physical space somewhere. Um, it just doesn't necessarily have to be where it currently is. I, I mean, review books are also electronic now. Yeah, but look at like Scalzi's blog. He still gets a lot of paper books. I don't know how. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Langford does too. Yeah, people are still sending paper books as well. I want Locust to continue, but equally, I have never read Locus, and it is not clear to me that the way they are going about this, even if they hit their fundraiser this time, I would not want to bet money that they will still exist in five years, because it doesn't seem like they're making any of the changes they need to make to be sustainable. So, Locus, hard love, pivot. They're going to have to change a lot, or they're going to die, and I don't think they're willing to change a lot, so I think they're going to die... And I don't think that's good, but I do think that if you made me bet £10 either way, I wouldn't be betting on them being around in, in five years. Yeah, I think see kind of where we are this time next year, because they say they're having an auction and a subscription drive and potentially, you know, they'll get quite a lot of extra subscriptions, um, which will put them on a good footing because that's what you really need. You need that kind of consistent revenue rather than people paying you $100 for something cool in an auction. Um, you know, maybe maybe more stuff will come out, but that's kind of what I'm hoping we'll see over the next year is exactly what what the proactive steps are um, so that next year isn't actually now we need $100,000 to survive. I'm still not betting you that $10 though. No, me neither. Do some picks. Picks, picks, picks. What order are we doing this in? What's happened here, listeners, is Liz and I, last episode, were debating which of us would get to pick Andor. And in order to make this decision easier for us, Alison decided to watch the first episode of Andor so she could pick it too. Uh, And so we have a three-way tie. And um, yeah, so... And I had a backup pick in in case Liz um, wanted to pick Andor. And um, now all is is Andor. So obviously I've only I want to go first because I've only seen the first episode and then if these guys get spoilery I can just take my headphones off. So I had a couple of things to say about Andor um having watched exactly one episode. The first is that all of my friends are talking about it not just John and Liz but all over the internet people are saying 
gosh, this series is very good in a way that I don't think has happened for the television output of the Star Wars universe before. Um, that it's very good in terms of what television should be and how it should be and things like that. I don't know none of this because I've only seen the first episode. Right from almost the first second, you know you're in the Star Wars universe. There's nowhere else you could be. There's tons of stuff that is just incredibly Star Warsy a bit about it all over the place. And I really like that because I like the sense that they are building a consistent universe here, despite the fact that it's enormously diverse and has all, all sorts of different things going on. But nevertheless, it's, um, it's, it's all very consistent. Everyone likes it. You are not wrong. I mean, it's true. I, I, John is the Star Wars fan here. I am not particularly... I mean, I like Star Wars, but I'm not like a fan in the way John is. And I have not, in fact, bothered watching any of the other Star Wars TV shows yet. And the internet is loving Andor in a way I can't remember loving anything except possibly that time when Baby Yoda ate a frog. Yeah. And even then, that was like a 30-second bit of an episode. Yeah, basically everyone watched it and was like, oh, actually, this is what you can do. In the Star Wars universe. I think it's the second good TV show in Star Wars. The first one being Rebels. Rebels is animated. So, like, I know a lot of people who just don't watch animated stuff. And you're like, you can watch animated stuff. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they don't. And also, uh, Rebels is, is explicitly aimed at a much younger audience. And it did. And so I think that is, like, two reasons why it was not widely discussed. In much the same way that, like, the reason that we didn't get much YA on the Hugo ballot until the Lodestar Award was because you don't tend to nominate um, stuff aimed at a younger audience in the big serious awards. But Andor is definitely the first good live-action TV show they've done. I liked Kenobi, but it had problems. And one of the problems it has is it filmed in the volume. And uh, Andor is filmed uh, in, you know, places. And you turns out you can do a lot more if you aren't limited to, like, a small circle surrounded by monitors. Who knew? But yeah, I think one of the senses of place, and I think this is, goes back to what Alison was saying about the Star Wars setting, the use of sets and, and, and kind of the use of real places makes it feel much more like you're in a place rather than, than kind of just not really. And the Mandalorian feels kind of really insubstantial in a way, and so does Kenobi, that Andor did not. And the insubstantiality is one of the problems that the prequel trilogy has that the, the um, original trilogy did not. And I wonder if it comes from over-reliance on this one technique that they used for the Mandalorian and then carried on using for the other stuff. It feels a lot like sort of maybe British 70s TV sci-fi in a good way. I mean, someone did a kind of fake 70s opening credits for Andor, which are brilliant. But there's just something about it being like, there's bits of it set in, in cities, there's bits of it set, you know, they do a lot of walking around hills and in the rain and in just sort of slightly gloomy looking remote areas there's something about that and there's something about the fact that the cast is full of british character actors as well that plus the fact that star wars always had this way of using the technology which has not advanced since the star wars of the 70s they managed to integrate this everything is like giant button pushing machines like you find in an abandoned 70s power plants kind of thing and somehow they integrate all of that. And for the first time, it didn't seem to feel like it was deliberately, you know, limiting themselves to this level of technology. It felt like they'd really kind of embraced that and just said, right, this is our aesthetic for the show. Everything's going to make sense. Mm -mm. No, exactly. 
the other thing about Andor is, it is it, it, really, I thought it got good ep- after episode three. <laughs> I thought the first three episodes, and I think there is a reason that when the first three episodes dropped on Disney+, Plus, it did not immediately make the sorts of waves that is making now that it has wrapped up. There are a couple of things that really kick into high gear after episode three and a couple of annoying narrative devices that are left behind. And I think first three episodes are setting up the last nine and the last nine are where the real gold is. Do you think that's fair, Liz? I think so. I think what I will say is that they dropped the first three episodes together and thereafter it came out week by week. And I watched the first three episodes. I didn't watch them all together. I watched one and then took a break and watched the next one. And they did not work nearly as well for me as for people who watched the first three because they do very much form a little kind of mini arc. And that was, I mean, the rest of the season was basically a series of mini arcs. And I think that first one works much better as three episodes together because I didn't feel the episode had a strong enough episodic structure. Whereas in the later mini arcs, each episode, I think, has a much stronger structure, even when it's set into this mini arc. I think also after I looked at episode three, where I predicted some of the characters would go is completely not where they went. You know, there were things I was thinking, oh, this is what's going to happen to this person and this person, this person. And nope, completely off. Oh, that's good. That's a good sign. Yeah. Do you mind casting spoilers, Alison? I mean, I don't mind spoilers, really. I I think our listeners might, though. Yeah, I'm not going to do any plot spoilers, but Andy Serkis pops up later in the show and it might be the best performance he's ever given. He is just amazing in it. Doc Brown or Ben Bailey plays a role which is very good. I didn't recognise him at all. Like, I've watched him in Taskmaster. I did not realise it was the same person. I thought someone was having a joke and then they were like, no, it uses a different name for acting. It's the same person. What? Yeah. Yeah. I think he's credited as Ben Bailey. His name's Ben Smith, but he was on Taskmaster as Doc Brown. So, like, I'm very sorry if I get how he is credited wrong, but it is all the same man, and I love that man. Uh, He's a good man. And one of the reasons why I've been rooting for his character. There seems to be some scenes of happy natives, and I really don't like that. Anyway, onwards. Yeah, that's that's the the stuff from the first episode about um, not Ferex, Cassian's... Oh, right. Cassian's background is, um, is we, are a, we are a peaceful, untechnological um, civilization, and I, I find that very annoying, but there we go. I know what you mean about the Happy Natives thing. Basically, there's a line in Rogue One where Cassian says that he's been in this fight since he was six years old, or is it five years old? But it's like an implausibly young age. And like at the time, I assumed that that was hyperbole, and in those scenes, I don't think he's as young as he says he was in Rogue One. Um, but I think it's basically an attempt to square the circle without just having him portrayed as an actual child soldier. W- one of the problems with Star Wars uh, YA media and like kids media is that Star Wars does actually turn out to have a lot of child soldiers in it. Because if you write uh, novels aimed at kids, the kids have to be protagonists. And because it's a story about war, they end up fighting in a war and if you think about it too much it gets really awkward really quickly um but i will say that the happy natives motif does not persist through uh the entire series can i have a digression where i talk about being old a little bit which is that when i was growing up which was the 70s an enormous amount of the cultural touchstones were heavily influenced by the second world war and people 
and the fact that the creators were people who at the time were people who had come out of that or been incredibly influenced by the immediate post-war times it's true in america as well um and this came up the other day by the fact that that, that i have a 1974 dad's army board game which can't go un blurred onto ebay because it has swastikas on the cover because it's a wartime thing but everything about the 70s was driven by people's perceptions of the second world war so that there were war stories everywhere and so star wars that glorifying war thing was embedded in the first star wars movie and then of course it's we've moved away from that the whole culture has moved away from all of our stories are war stories or a huge proportion of our stories are war stories. There's still some of that in the kind of formative mush that Star Wars was developed out of. And I think this leads to things like, because when I was a child, there were an awful lot of stories about child soldiers. And there were also an awful lot of child soldiers. Um, we've, we've changed, I think, as a planet, hopefully for the better. Hopefully we won't go back to a world where Charles, being a child soldier is glorified. I think you're right. And I think I think like... It's tricky because when you read the stories that are aimed at kids, it doesn't seem problematic because the kids have all the agencies. And then you read like plot summaries of what happened in a particular part of Star Wars, and it's like, then this child was recruited to do this. And you're like, oh no. Uh, and it, it gets a bit. Um... Child spies are another. Yep. You know, like Sherlock Holmes had child spies. Child spies are a very big part of literature, traditionally. Children are very excited by the idea of being a child spy. And then you actually look at what spies do and you go, oh, oh no. Or pirates, cabin boys, you know, the whole, everything, all of our, all of our adventure literature has this theme running for, through it of preteens and young teenage kids doing exciting grown-up things, which are perhaps not that exciting. So I want to call out some other actors just before we stop talking about Andor. I love um, Adria Arjona as Bix. She was also, and I don't know if either of you recognised her, she was Anathema in the TV series Good Omens. And she is very different in both of those, uh, which I think is a great testament to how good she is at acting. That's where I know her from. Yes. I did not recognise her. Apparently I don't recognise anyone. Denise Goff is amazing as Dedra Miro, who is just so good. And... Genevieve O'Reilly, um, who was in Revenge of the Sith but got cut but plays Mon Mothma, and it's really good to see uh, Mon Mothma being kind of fleshed out given that she just randomly pops up in Return of the Jedi, and it's quite nice to see that character come back. And there is another, I don't want to do, there's a piece of casting which is a huge spoiler for a plot thing, which I'm not going to say out loud, but I thought that that was good. And also, one last thing, the droid! The droid is the best droid. Best droid. So it struck me when I was watching Andor, that I had just, you know, been on a ride called Rise of the Resistance, but you could basically call Andor Rise of the Resistance instead. And it, it basically digs into the thing that I, for one, have always really wanted to see in the Star Wars universe, which is the kind of the early days of the Resistance. How do you form this Resistance movement, which will go on to be, you know, the... Rebellion. What, what John? The Resistance, the Resistance is 30 years later. This is the Rebellion. Yeah, well, it's this is the rebellion which goes on to be the resistance, right? This is the rebellion that leads into Rogue One. And this is something, this is the other reason I really like Rebels, because Rebels also... So a lot of the stuff that Andor does to show the early days of the rebellion and to show kind of Mon Mothma's uh, role in that and to kind of highlight people like Saw Gerrera and how they fit in, 
was done by rebels um and is being revisited by andor and so a lot of those themes are really cool but it's weird to revisit them with people who haven't watched rebels because a lot of it is really i mean i don't know how much of this is conscious but like a lot of these themes are the same themes um is rebels set at roughly the same time rebels is set later but came out earlier yeah but you're basically saying so people who like Andor should go and watch Rebels even though they are slightly worried about watching animated things, which I, I would endorse your notion is is not you know, go and watch animated things, guys, they're good. I don't know if this one is, but in general. Rebels is Rebels is aimed at a much younger audience, so like like is probably not as hard hitting as Andor, but I do I think it is brilliant. But yeah. I mean I'm prepared to go and watch Rebels. I just you know, well, probably was not very aware of it, and also don't remember ever being on any kind of TV service I had access to. I don't know where it was broadcast in the UK. I know that is fair. I assume it's on Disney Plus now, right? It is now, yeah. I also don't know where it was broadcast, Liz. I've only had Disney Plus for like a year because I got it like a year later than you did, so I have not caught up with everything that was on Disney Plus. Oh no, yeah, that's, that's fair. That's fair. Anyway, I, I think, okay, so I think what I'm saying is I like what Andor does, even if something else has already done it. I think they really looked out with the fact that they kind of already had an actress who was Mon Mothma, mm. but is definitely up to like the task of what she has to do in this one, which is, I don't know, I, it's it's very fascinating to watch kind of the contrast between her, between Stellan Skarsgård's character and Andor. I mean, and I, I think the only thing that I've seen is that I kind of agree with is some criticism that it feels more like a show which is interested in 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 a wide range of characters and maybe loses a bit of its focus on Andor. And I think Diego Luna does a great job of what is sometimes a very kind of underplayed. Uh, his role is quite underplayed um, in that he has to do a lot of the heavy lifting. He never gets to do the big kind of like, well... There's sort of some big kind of scenes and big monologues that other characters get. And it feels like it gets a little bit shortchanged on some of that and has to do a lot just kind of from his expressions and from us watching him in some ways react to things. So that would be my one complaint is that sometimes I was a bit more interested in people who were not Andor rather than Andor, which I probably shouldn't because it's his TV show. But that's a very minor complaint, really. I think, and maybe I'm wrong... I think that one of the great things about Star Wars is like the people around the people we care about. Like, I don't think the original trilogy wouldn't have been better if it focused more on Luke. Uh, and I don't think the sequel trilogy would have been better if it focused more on Rey. And arguably, I think one of the problems the prequel trilogy has is it focuses too much on Anakin. Uh, and so I think in actuality, although I see what you mean, I think that's one of the strengths of Star Wars as a franchise is that although it is literally a series of stories about chosen ones it doesn't focus on those chosen ones as much as it might like the focus is much less on on the chosen one in any of the given movies than it is on the superhero in a marvel movie for instance and i think that is to star wars's credit i will also say i don't understand how i skipped uh complimenting diego luna's acting because he is great like so good in this entire thing he is so good he nails it and so I think you're right there that like in some places he does a lot with a little, but I do wonder whether they knew he would. And so they were able to do that. I wonder if they'd had a lesser actor, they would have had to focus it more on Andor because there wouldn't have been as as much there if they hadn't. 
It might be a yeah, it might be an expression of trust in the actor, I guess. We liked Andor, listeners. I haven't liked it yet. I've only liked a tenth of it or a twelfth of it. But I am expecting to like the rest. I'm very much looking forward to watching it. I have had to pause my ongoing expanse watch in order to fit Andor in. This does beg a question, and the question it begs is, is this better? I would argue this is probably going to get nominated for Best Long Form because I don't think there's a standout episode. I think it's just a very tight 12-episode thing. And I would argue similar about Severance. So then my question is, if this and Severance are on the long-form ballot, which do you vote for? Um, Everything, everywhere, all at once. If it was between this and Severance, which would you vote for? I've only seen one episode. Give me, give me a chance. I think I did say that. Okay. Look, Alison has managed to watch all of Severance, which means by Alison's standard, it was extremely compelling because she's watched it in, you know, under a year. So, I mean, it seems like Severance. Oh, yeah, no, could, could be argued. What about you, Liz? Uh, it's tricky, but I think I would probably go with Andor. But bear in mind, I just literally finished watching Andor, so... I've literally not had a chance. As soon as I noticed Andor, I started watching it. And and then we were prevented from watching more episodes by not being at home. So we'll see a second. Ask me next time how many episodes I've I've watched, because it might be 12. I am going to be a bad Star Wars fan. I think I preferred Severance to Andor. If it was between the two, I would vote for Severance. It would be a strange universe if John ends up voting for something non-Star Wars, where I vote for a Star Wars thing, won't it? Yes. Come back in January where we're going to discuss this in more detail, guys. And that was the Odd Thought Podcast. And it's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. I have an anti-pick for the logo, which I hate with a fiery, fiery passion because people talk about the effective use of negative space and this isn't it. This is how to do something clever with negative space and therefore make your logo unreadable and stupid. And apparently there was a logo for this that was released a couple of years ago that looks like a perfectly reasonable logo. And now there's this logo, which is unreadable and crap. And oh God, it's very annoying. I will say I disagree with Alison on the logo because I correctly read the logo and it says Andor, uh, so I don't think it's unreadable. Hot take. I quite like the logo. I don't have strong feelings on it, I guess. I'm like a four out of ten. Yeah, my hot take is I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) The theme music for this episode was Fanfare for Space by Kevin MacLeod and Competech.com, used under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license. This podcast will end at the beep. Beep.